Welcome back to another episode of Startup Therapy. I'm Will Schroeder, the founder and CEO of Startups.com. And today, my co-host is my friend Sam Parr, founder and CEO of The Hustle. Welcome to the show, Sam. What's going on? Good to have you. So uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with The Hustle, and I'm kind of guessing that's probably in the minority, it's pretty much become the de facto daily read for founders, myself included, uh, all about tech and startup news. Uh, Sam's expanded way beyond the newsletter and now has a product that's called Trends, which is a whole community around how to spot uh, the up and coming trends that startups might want to follow different opportunities in community and information. <laughs> There's no way I was going to so make it's, it's... through that commercial alone. That's all right. Yeah, right, right. So Sam's had a front row seat in tracking the growth of startups and founders at a massive scale. So he's seen all of it, which makes him the perfect candidate for this discussion today. There's a reason you're on here, my friend. So Sam, when we first met in the, the early days of the hustle, uh, I remember when we met in that little place in San Francisco at the base of Twitter, which will probably now never get used again, considering restaurants aren't around and neither is Twitter. I think Andrew Warner introduced us who... You just said his podcast went live today, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He killed it. He's just absolutely amazing. Uh, but you were in the early days, like when we first met. Uh, you were just getting started with the brand. Uh, I was already reading the reading the newsletter, reading the product. Um, but things were just starting to form. It was obviously before trends. It was before a lot of things. I mean, uh, I don't think you had more than a couple employees at the time. No. So like, I'd been tinkering on this as a project for a bit. Um, but our company is turned like the the thing that we're known for turned four years old in may so however long ago we met that's how early it was we probably we were probably six to ten months in yeah you were super early in and what was beautiful is you just had this voice for the product that just resonated so well but you guys also had an insight as to how founders were developing how their ideas were developing and you just were so real about it it was just so uncut and i think that's why everybody kind of flocked to the product and how many people do you have now uh how many readers it's north of 1.5 million getting close to 2 million jeez i mean so you guys have this incredible purview like i said you've got a bit of a front row seat and you're seeing firsthand, not to mention the fact that you're, you've got a startup yourself, exactly what this startup growth and scale looks like. You've seen kind of the biggest hits and, and some of the misses. So what, while I've watched your company grow like crazy, you know, nearly 2 million readers, you've got eight-figure revenue, seven-figure profit, you've got this killer brand, which is why when we caught up a month ago, and remember we were talking for a bit, you reached out to me, we were talking about some, some personal stuff. Um, and we were talking about how well the company was doing, and I commented how good the financial performance was. And you said something that I can't get out of my mind. You said it's not shit. <laughs> yeah, it ain't shit. I look, I'm self-loathing. For I'm a hardcore self-loather. But did you believe? Okay, well, let me, let me back up. We'll, we'll get into this. What I th think is fascinating, and we talked to lots of founders, both you and I, is that we have this sense for what we think success is, what we think making it, what we think is shit. And somehow we create these goals amorphously. Nobody creates them for us. And we kill ourselves to get to those goals. And yet, no matter how well we seem to do, it's not shit. If, if you could have, Sam, let's start here. If you could have taken yourself back four years when we first met and said, you've got eight-figure revenue, you've got seven-figure profit, would you still felt that way? No, I would have thought I, I, I'm the most successful guy in the world. Right. But why? Why was it then? And what's changed? 
So what's like the definition of happiness? Is the definition of happiness like that gap between expectations and reality? Like, um, like that's like, like that gap, the size of that gap is like the definition maybe. That is like directly correlated to the level of happiness maybe. So I, I think that as our company has grown, just my expectations have changed. What I, what I want to accomplish has changed. Um, I also think that living you know i lived in san francisco up until recently and i i hang out with i mean i'm friends with like billionaires and i had HustleCon, which we would have billionaires come and talk and like the founders of huge companies and when i meet them i'm like this dude is not smarter than me or this guy or this woman is not better than me or i can cr i know way more about this than this person and i'm like oh fuck i can crush them and like you get like you know not you know not like in a sense of like they're not smart or anything but you like meet your heroes and you're like oh they're normal right um and i think that that makes your expectations different where you're like okay therefore there's no reason why i'm not going to be like that and until you are like that which i guess who hell who the hell knows if you ever are if you even notice that it's like i'm not achieving my potential so so let's let's break that down a little bit because um, we'd probably first agree, maybe, wouldn't you say that your potential obviously changes over time, you know, kind of like you're, you're in grade school and every year, you know, you're getting harder tests because your potential is harder. So four year, years ago, Sam had a different potential than current day, Sam. Yeah. Like, um, when you accomplish stuff, you realize that like, oh, that accomplishment you had in your brain, like that actually wasn't that hard. You just weren't confident enough to, uh, go out and grab it. And uh, you know what I mean? That implies that um, our expectations are aligned with what we think we can do, not what we can actually do. So w were you geometrically more capable four years ago or less capable than you are now? No. I mean, I was I was talented then as well. I think that it's a confidence issue more than anything. And so what, what started to drive confidence for you? Success. When you get your first million dollars, you're like, Oh my god, that's the hardest thing ever. And then you're like, "Damn, that ain't shit. That ain't that ain't hard. <laughs> that that ain't that that wasn't that hard. I mean, it was kind of hard, but wasn't that hard." And you're like, "If I knew what I knew then, I could have done that in like six months." And so we feel. And so the 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 goal line keeps changing, which creates this exactly. this endless cycle of lack of validation. And I'm going to take happiness out of it because I think happiness is is a, is a con combination of a lot of other things. And I also think happiness isn't like happiness is stupid. Like there is no such thing as happiness. There's like, you are always in a, for some, a lot of people like you and me, we are never going to be satisfied. There is only like a contentment or joy in the seeking that you have to find. Are you at a point now where when you hit a milestone and you're like, okay, I'm call it 50% fulfilled. When you made your first million dollars of real money, was there a part of you that said, hey, my progress bar on satisfaction and validation has hit like the halfway mark? No. I thought that I was going to be fully happy, and then I realized that it didn't change anything. Uh, there, there was one thing that happened. When I hit $100,000 in savings, that was like the one mark that I'm like, oh, that feels cool. And then n nothing, nothing really mattered after that. Yeah, we talked about that, actually. I don't know if you listened to uh, an episode Ryan and I did a, a few months ago. It was about safety. It was talking about the difference between yeah, I did. safety and happiness. And actually, I think I said $100,000 just arbitrarily, but I used that as a reference point. And I said, if you have $100,000 in the bank, 
there's not a lot in life that you can't solve with $100,000. Now, you can't live forever off of it, but I'm talking about emergency money, right? There, yeah. there just numerically aren't a lot of life emergencies that would exceed $100,000 of cost. They do exist. But at some point, you kind of you go to buy something and you realize that it's not going to make a meaningful impact in your bank account, meaning like it's not that one in zero. Like I buy a TV and I therefore don't have money to go do something else. Yeah, a hundred k was like an interesting number. But then, like you do this as well, because I mean, like after you and I do it now too. After you start experiencing stuff, like I don't really like I'm I, I don't live like I don't think I live that fancy. I live well below my means. But every once in a while, I do ball out, <laughs> and it's like, man, if, if I wanted to ball out, like, like if I want to fly private all the time, like I gotta have at least five million in uh net net in, uh post tax income right you know what i mean it's one of the few things that the rest of us can't do right i mean just about everything else you can buy once that's the one thing that if, if you want to get addicted uh, although it's it's a little bit overrated yeah but it, it could be anything else like if i want to like right now i'm balling out or i consider it balling out i'm staying in a bunch of really cool homes in new york and i'm spending 10k a month which is amazing and i normally don't do that i normally spend 4k a month going back to 4 year ago sam Freshman Sam, if you told freshman Sam in four years you'll be spending ten thousand dollars a month in Brooklyn, kind of doing whatever you want, would you believe that? Yeah, I would be like, like what the like it, spending money like is like it goes against my religion, you know? Like I'm like the most frugal dude ever. So uh, now I understand that I can ball out every once in a while, but uh, I would have been like, you're going to hell. But but here's where it's fucked up. Four years ago, which isn't that long ago, it's not that long ago. You thought you could never have this life. Now you have this life. And a month ago, you said, that's not shit. And again, I'm not saying you, you disrespected your lifestyle. Obviously, you're very happy and you're thankful for it. But all of a sudden, all the goalposts changed, even though they didn't have to. And I think this is a problem as founders we deal with all the time. We keep moving the goalposts on ourselves, which at some level is progress. But at another level, it starts to make you feel like you've, you can constantly never get there because there is never reachable. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, here's kind of what it is, which is, you know how people say, don't worry about stuff you can't control. And like, that's like a, a good, that's a pretty good way to live life, I think. But I think that when you start working in business or anything that involves like gaining power in the world, what you realize is that if you do, if you behave a certain way and you think a certain way, most things that are like um, constraint bound, like influence in society and power and objects that you want to achieve or also like how to convince other people to do and work at your company most things in life are incredibly malleable to if your personality is strong enough and therefore everything is changeable and you should almost worry about everything you know what i mean it's kind of like a, a horrible paradox but what i've learned in business and this is why i'm so fascinated with business it's not really the money part but business is the number one way to like have impact on our capitalist society. Right. And if it weren't a capitalist society, it would still be money or it would be power, which you get by having the money. Sure. So like, um, like creating stuff that people want to pay for, it's definitely like the best way to shape the world around your knee, like to bend the world the, the way you want it to, to. And I think that, um, what a lot of people forget is like the buildings they see around them, the streets, the objects, like it was just done by a person who was bold enough to convince everyone else to buy into it. And so yep. when you think about it that way, you're like, I should worry about this because I can change it. 
what you're talking about is I've recognized how much potential I have, and that's actually become a liability for me because now I have to go exactly. service that potential. And if I do more, then I have to do more. It's like there's this, there are these different kind of thresholds that we get into. Um, I think the first one, we talked about this a little bit, is safety, right? When you don't have anything, yeah. you just want to be safe, right? That $100,000 totally. got you there. I think 100K for sure got to safety. Like, yeah, I would say that was definitely the safety number. Okay, so so use that as just like one step. So all of a sudden you're at 100K and you're safe. Think of how much time was spent, how many mental cycles were spent being fearful of not being safe. Yeah, it's fucked up, right? Right, and then then all of a sudden you were fortunate enough, you earned it, to take that off your off your plate. And for the first time in your life, for and I'm using you as really all of us, you could think about things that weren't just safety. And all of a sudden you're like, well, shit, not only can I become safe, I've got the wherewithal, but now I have all these extra cycles to do things that aren't just about safety. And you're like, okay, that's a level up. And then all of a sudden, let's say you make a bunch of cash, which you have, and now you've got a ton of dough. You're one of those guys that can go to Brooklyn and spend $10,000 a month. And now you're like, well, shit. Now I'm even more capable. Now what else can I do with that? You know, how much bigger of an impact can I have? Right? Exactly. And why isn't it that at each of those steps, you couldn't have just chilled out for a while? Why isn't it at right now where you're at, Sam, that you can't be good for 10 more years? Well, I could. I mean, like, if you just, like, do the math, it's like, I can, I can sustain my lifestyle forever, probably. Financially, yes. I mean, emotionally. Yeah, I think why I think that that's the paradox. If anyone, most people who are high achieving are definitely broken in some way emotionally, right? Like any like anyone who uh, nine out of ten people I think who are who are who are on one side of the bell curve, they are emotionally not stable, right? Um, right. And so I think that's just the that's just or not. I don't. I wouldn't say emotionally unstable. I would say emotionally different than they're they're different than the norm it's like comedians like you you know how comedians are like always messed up yeah like why did robin williams kill himself why right. does jim carrey jim carrey is bipolar i mean like it's the same type of thing what we're saying is we go into this thing we get into this game with this notion that if i succeed i get safety all these things that things will start to get better oh also just as a reminder you know if you need help with any of this stuff you can always email us at therapy at startups.com and we'll help you figure any of this stuff out you know as you guys know we've got full teams of people over at startups.com that are dedicated toward figuring these kinds of problems out. So don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us help. But no one really says to you, hey, Sam, by the way, if things start going really well, you're actually going to have a compounding level of anxiety that's going to get worse and worse as you go. And you're going to have this level of guilt, by the way, 100% created by you, that you're going to be carrying with you and adding to all the time. And then here's what you're going to do. And actually, we should talk about this. You're then going to move to a city like San Francisco, where everyone around you is carrying and, and accelerating the same amount of guilt and anxiety. And it's going to make you even more insane. And you and I both done a tour of duty in San Francisco. I think we're, we're somewhat familiar with, with that lifestyle. San Francisco, man, it's crazy. It's crazy for two reasons. The first is, like, my best friend sold his company for $800 million. And he is so not he like he he legitimately doesn't care. He's lived like he's poor forever. He uh, is so frugal. I told him to buy a car the other day because he needed a car, and his wife's pregnant, 
and he was like gonna buy like the cheapest Toyota for fifteen thousand dollars. I was like, dude, you gotta like get a nice car. Like you have the money, and it's like for safety. And 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 he was like, I'm just gonna give all the money all away. He legitimately doesn't care. He's the only person I've ever met that's actually like that. But anyway, you see, he's my best friend. I see how we went from zero to not zero, and it. You're like, oh, that's the goalpost. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And and that's crazy. And I have a bunch of other. I've got one of my. You know Moise Ali. I don't know if you know who Moise is, but he started this thing called Native Deodorant. Him and I shared a desk in like a little ten-person workspace, and he. I remember he would order. He started. It was Native's a deodorant company, and he would order the 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 prototype. And I was like with him. He sold that business for a hundred million in cash after two years. Whoa! And yeah, to Procter and Gamble, and no money. He didn't raise any money. And uh, you're like, oh, so like that's what's possible. Like so, once you see what's possible, like it changes your worldview. And the, by the way, the second thing about San Francisco that sucks, I'm gonna name drop a little bit. Sorry, I sound like a douche, but we interviewed Ty <laughs> Lopez on our podcast, and then I went and hung out with him afterwards. And he was like, "Say what you will about the guy, but this one thing he said was interesting to me." He said, "Um, he's like the the thing about San Francisco why it sucks is all these people they're definitely like rich, but none of them like." have fun with the money or like ball out and like they all look like they're bums and like none of them spend it on like exciting stuff and they're all just nerds who live boring lives i actually went through the same thing uh and i said the same thing to to sarah my wife i said you know i've never met more wealthy people that have no idea what to do with their money than i did in san francisco i said call me a total loser which is fine i said in the four years that i lived there i never once got invited to a pool party when we lived in l.a we got invited to three pool parties a day. <laughs> I mean, it was just... That's yeah, funny, right? They don't, like... Um, like, no one has, like, cool cars. Like, can you imagine buying... You like nice cars. Can you imagine what your San Francisco friends... What my San Francisco friends would say if I bought a Ferrari? They'd be like, what are you, douche? Like, get the hell out of here. And, and, and there's there's pros and cons to that, but it's this really interesting thing where why are all these folks who are so incredibly successful, so smart, so um, capable so unhappy and it's in in what i what i noticed more than anything was it's all a matter of comparison right you set your own goals and like in the building we lived in um at, at 10th and market we're in this um uh big apartment building it was basically a giant dorm you lived you lived you lived in nema right yeah 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 my girlfriend my wife now wife lived there so You're Sarah. Ex- i know exactly yeah my sarah i know exactly what you're gonna say well, it was like a giant dorm room for like twitter uber and square right? I've never seen more unhappy, ridiculously overpaid people in my life, right? It was just... Yeah, it's crazy. Bananas. And all I can think to myself is um, I respect what they've done, what they've accomplished. But if you can't put yourself in a position to enjoy the accomplishments and you keep doing it every year that goes by, you're like, no matter how much I get. Do you guys blur, blur out cuss words? Can I say a cuss word here? Oh, if you listen to enough... Well, you have listened to enough of this podcast. Uh, we, we use them very much. It's like it's like saying, what's the point of having fuck you money if you don't say fuck you? You know what I mean? Like that, That's the thing. But it goes back to kind of what our expectations are, right? Kind of who's setting the goalposts. So think about this. Four years ago, Sam is talking to current Sam. And current Sam says, hey, I've got this thing called the hustle. I just made a million dollars in profit. And four years ago, Sam was like, that's the most amazing thing ever. And you're like, oh, that's not shit. Think about that. You're, you're at, in this case, in this uh, uh, metaphor, you're the same person. That's, it's nuts. What throws us all off is we have to be able to step back and say, what are the goals? Why are the goals? 
And if I hit them, am I just right back to where I started? Because if, if that's true, then what the fuck? Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you. I think that, um, I think that like, one side has to be like, you're right. That ain't shit. Keep going. You can, you can do anything you want. And then the other side has to be like, yes, correct. I can do anything I want. And, and none of this stuff matters, but it is still cool to get up, get after. Do you know what I mean? The the way that I describe, well, the way that I describe it is like, let's say like for me, let's say I wanted to bench 300 pounds. I'm going to work really hard to do it. And the day I hit it, I'm going to be like, nice. That was so great. Man, I bet I could do three twenty if I like, <laughs> you know, if I did this thing or that thing. Right, right. And so I, I think that like to say that that is not a worthy pursuit, I think is is nonsense because um, I can't speak for the other side, but as a man, it's like my goal in life is like to like conquer, like it's to contribute, it's to like work, right? right. Like that is like I'm I'm built to work, I'm built to achieve, I'm built to uh, get after it. And so, like, I'm not going to suppress my animalistic need to, like, improve or hunt. But uh, I do have to try to put in perspective that, like, the the happiness is in the hunt and not necessarily after getting the kill. Well, it is. And I think there's a, a part of it, too, is it's almost like uh, I'll speak for myself. I won't project. I know for me, like, once I became safe, Sam, like, at that point, uh, it was a huge load off my shoulders because lack of safety kind of defined my my childhood. Um, but after that, I was like, then I kind of got into this next phase, which was capability. Like, what am I capable of? Like, you know, let's see how much I can ramp it up. And I got into that, and, and I made a million dollars. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. Now, if that's if that's possible, then I can do anything. Now, here's what threw me off about that last piece. The last piece is what I call playing with house money. Right. At which point you've gotten far enough along in your career that you can play the I can do anything game. At that point, we should be saying is if it goes great, if it doesn't, I'm not going to kill myself over it. Right. Like I'm not going to like, like, you know, cry myself to sleep over it because I'm playing with house money at that point. Does that make sense? Have you have you read this book? Yeah. Have you read this book called How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis? Uh, no, I've heard the book, but I haven't read it. Oh man, he's awesome. So it's a guy named Felix Dennis. He was like a mixture of like Richard Branson and Mick Jagger, where he was like this wild flamboyant guy, but he was like legit, like a drug addict. He owned the week. He owned a lot. Yeah. He was a publisher. He owned the week. He owned Maxim magazine. He owned Micro Warehouse, which was huge. He owned a bunch of stuff. He was like addicted to crack, like <laughs> like had like, you know, prostitutes constantly. I mean, he was like a an animal. But he's like insightful, and he was like, if I had to do it again, I would have retired much earlier and just been a poet. So he's like this interesting guy, and he's got this great book. And one of my favorite things about this great book is that he gets very specific, and he's, he puts numbers. He's like, you want to achieve this by this, this by this, and then like, I love that. So in that regard, can we get specific? So when did you... What, what was your number for security? There are two milestones. Uh, first, it was $20,000 in the bank. When when I set that milestone, I was making five dollars an hour. That's so funny. Mine, mine was twenty five thousand. Yeah, you're right. Again, because it's 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 such a big number relative to how incredibly broke you are. And and I couldn't have had more than a hundred dollars in my bank account. I'm not talking about savings. I mean, like in my checking account, right? I was living ha- hand to mouth. And to me, twenty thousand dollars. Well, twenty thousand dollars was an entire year of pay <laughs> at that rate. To put that in perspective, it wasn't insignificant. I think my rent was three hundred dollars a month. So, like you know, all things being relative, uh, that was all the money in the world. And then within like the first 
two years of my business, I hit that. Now, I was also racking up lots of debt in the process, but we, you know, we, had, we were an agency, so we had cash flow coming in. And so I remember having $20,000 really in the business checking account. It wasn't even in my own checking account. And I just thought, I've, I've won. Like, I'm done here. You know what I mean? I'll be good forever. And then all of a sudden, you start to talk to people who are a little bit further along, same thing. And you're like, oh, wait, that's not quite enough. Uh, the next milestone I hit uh, when I was like 21, maybe, I had $250,000 in the bank. And at that point, uh, I thought I was a billionaire. I mean, and in, in, in we did actually one of our first episodes about this. And I bought my house, my cars, my furniture, everything with that money. I didn't spend it all. That is the whole point. And I was like, well, dude, I'm like 21 years old. And I have like a Ferrari, a BMW, a house in the suburbs, like all this cool stuff. And I was like, I actually don't have anything else to spend money on. What was your annual income? Ah, uh, boy, that was a long time ago. It was over a million dollars. I don't remember exactly. I mean, sad to say. No, you like that was Will's yeah, money? Yeah. I, I But I'm... Okay. So you, so you had a million dollars in personal cash flow a year? Oh, more. But yeah. I mean, we end up growing really fast. That's crazy, right? Well, it, it it was also crazy because it happened so fast. Um, and it happened in an unprecedented time. This we're talking nineteen ninety seven. We're talking about a very long time ago, right? That's twenty three years ago. What what well what was your guys' revenue? Was it like how fast are we talking? And like from year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, like what was it like in, in ninety you know, fifty thousand? Yeah, ninety seven we won an account from a company called Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical company, and that was two hundred and fifty million dollars a year. How the hell? So your revenue went from zero to two hundred fifty million a year in a very short time, like four years. How the hell did you convince them? Uh, you know, it's that's a long story for another podcast. But oh my it, god, it was, uh, it was one of the most lopsided wins in agency history. Uh, we had maybe forty five people on staff at that time, um, and, and we, if I recall, we took out uh, gray advertising out of Chicago, the incumbent, um, for, for the business. And that business now is is doing, I think four or five billion dollars i have nothing to do with what that, is that the, the agency and so of that 250 how much did you see uh none of it um if, if you understand how uh agency grows and how non-funded businesses grow um every penny that you take in you owed three months ago right so in other words uh, i'll never forget the first year when i got like a tax bill for like four million dollars and i didn't have a dollar to show for it because essentially, like we were, we were billing ahead, but collecting later. And, and we were on a crew. I don't want to get into a huge tangent here. But the, the net of it was the business was growing super fast. But we weren't able to take a lot of cash out at the time because we needed it because the business was growing super fast. And then how much did you sell the company for? Uh, about $300 million in cash. So then you don't have to reveal this, but I imagine your take of that would have been like, a, a let's say a third if you had three partners. It, uh, I got a fraction of a fraction. So not that much, <laughs> not, not as much as a third, but enough, but enough. That's crazy. Right. And so did that make you feel different? No, uh, it, it created a huge liability. Um, so it goes back to expectations though, right? Um, the expectations are, um, what did I expect? You said this at the top of the episode, what did I expect to get out of everything? Uh, where, what do I think my expectations are now? And then of course, what's reality? My expectations going into it was, I can't believe if I could make $20,000. And then all of a sudden I'm driving a Ferrari to work a few years later. Right. 
and at that point i'm like well dude if i'm driving ferrari i should be able to, to, to drive this ferrari to the tarmac to hop in my private jet and go somewhere right and then when you're doing that you're like well then i should own a football team and then I, you know like it never ends in in what messes with me and why i was so interested in talking to you about this is we both kind of know it we both kind of know like like things are good we both we know mentally this shouldn't bother us as much as it does totally but it does and there's no way to get off the hamster wheel and and you know what's funny is uh four-year-old or four-year-ago uh sam and 19-year-old will are listening to this podcast like he's fucking idiots right like if if, you know these entitled arrogant jerks if they only knew what they had you know they'd never well i think I imagine that there's someone whose earbuds are in their head right now and they're saying these guys are entitled douches. I mean, look, I have a podcast and I get called this all the time. So I, we're, 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 someone's probably thinking that now. And they're right. Uh, they're right. They're right. I agree. Here's the problem. This cycle repeats over and over and over. Sam and I didn't make up this cycle. Like We didn't invent this cycle. We don't have a book coming out about this cycle, right? We subscribe to it under the same path that everyone else did. That same kind of torrent that pulls everyone else in, that sets these expectations, regardless of where we came from. I grew up on welfare. Why, why in any world? If, if I could get to safety, would I care about anything else? Yeah. I was, today I was listening to, um, you know, this, I, I don't watch it anymore because it makes me go a little crazy. But do you know that TV show called Billions? Oh, I love that show. I like it too. I love it. And I stopped watching it because I started emulating Bobby Axelrod and that he has a well. lot of redeeming <laughs> he, yeah well he has like a lot of redeeming but like he's also like a, a horrible person um but you want to like him because he's good looking and he's funny and he's bold and whatever uh, it's like when you watch like the Wolf of Wall Street you're like oh I want to be like that guy but you're like oh he's a he's a fucking ass. he's the worst uh, and, but anyway you realize later in both of those those are anti-heroes like, <laughs> like right yeah but you like because you know leonardo DiCaprio's cool you're like you like want to be like him yeah so i quit watching that for that reason um but today there was a scene that i liked that i was re-watching and it was this guy whose hedge fund shut down and bobby was like dude you got to come work for me and they and bobby was trying to convince him that he would that this other guy uh michael was poor and that, like, he's got to come. And Bobby goes, uh, listen, like, what do you got left? And Michael goes, $40 million. I remember and that Bobby episode. Bobby goes, oh, he goes, you're broke, man. Like, think <laughs> about it. Like, you're, the debt service for your three homes, the jet, like, like in order to, he's like, in order to stay on the board, your wife to stay on the board at the museum, that's at least a mil a year. Like, you're going to be broke in three years. And, like, part of me was like, he's right. You got to go bigger. And then the other part of me was like, these pussies, like, <laughs> like you guys are so soft. You know what I mean? And like, right, right. I hate this. And, and so it's, it's this car crash that we're all watching ourselves, like get into the car during the car crash and watching ourselves go through and incapable of pulling ourselves out of it. And, and, and I know, Sam, you said this a moment ago. I know there's a part of us that genuinely appreciates the hustle, right? You know, we, we appreciate knowing that there's something that's getting us out of bed in the morning and making us want to do more. And if someone took that away, we'd actually be truly miserable. We don't just appreciate it, but we need it. It's got to be like air, you know, like, uh, like humans, we are born to grind. Right. Right. Like that is like in our DNA. We have to do it. And so is there a part of you, though, that feels like if I keep getting put on this hamster wheel, that there's going to be an end game? There's going to be 
Uh, this moment that I always remember Mark Cuban quoting when he was sitting in his underwear uh, at his house watching his um, his net worth go to a billion dollars. And he was like, it was incredibly unsatisfying. Right. He's like, it was just like I watched the number tick or watch the transfer go through. And I was like, hmm, OK. Right. And like uh, I keep picturing this penultimate moment that we all seem to be getting up in the morning and, and charging toward and it hits. And there's there's no ticker tape parade. There's no like big ending. There's no like, you know, amazing uh, anthem. It's just like, oh, OK, well, it's Tuesday. Now I got to go back to work. It, I don't know. Have you read this book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning um, by Viktor Frankl? Uh, no. So it's considered by the like the Library of Congress named it like one of the most influential books of all time. It's pretty fascinating. And it's about this Jewish guy in the 1940s who had this theory on life that he was a uh, psychologist, psychiatrist. I don't know the re- what he was exactly, but a, a PhD like a researcher. And he had this thing that he invented called logotherapy, which was like, he was trying to find the meaning of life, but it wasn't like in this woo-woo way. It was like legitimately, it was like in a in a, in a a Pavlov's dog type of way. Like he was like studying this uh, cause and effect. And anyway, he, his, he came to the conclusion of a couple things. The first was, if your why is strong enough, you can endure any how. And coincidentally, in 1941, he was put in a concentration camp. So it's like, the reason why it's an interesting book is like, he went through like his own experiment. And like he went through like the worst thing in the history of the world, and it just so happened he was had a whole theory on man on the, the meaning of life. And so what he found is is that the 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 POWs or the um, uh, uh, Holocaust victims, the ones who often died earliest, were the ones who expected the end to come. And so he they were like, you know, I heard that by Christmas time we're going to get out. Or like, you know, I bet you we're going to get out by this time. Or, you know, they say that like the Americans are coming and the ones who had an end date set and then it missed the end date, they like were so unhappy that they slowly died. Whereas the other ones that had a different perspective, they were less likely to die. And so I think that there's something interesting about um, projecting an ending time versus not. And so I don't even know where I'm going with this, but you, you know, like, um, I get it. what you're saying is like, if, if we say, Hey, when I hit this goal, like everything will be great. And then you hit that goal. You're like, well, shit, it wasn't that great. It never is. And then you're kind of starting all over again, right? Like you're, you're infinitely disappointed. There was this, this moment, uh, right before I started and kind of why I started startups.com where, uh, I was 37 years old at the time. I had started eight companies and some of them did well. Some of them did nothing. And every time I got to that milestone, good or bad, I felt nothing, right? Like I just, it just felt like I kept doing the same thing over and over. And yet I burned so many cycles getting there, right? I mean, literally took years off my life on my way to try to get to these places that didn't matter. So when I did startups, I had this idea. I said, what if I do a company or work on something where there is no end date? Like I'm just going to help founders for the rest of my life. This is just going to be my job. This is all I do for the rest of my life. It doesn't matter how big or small it is, but I'm not going to be doing anything else. And Sam, when I did that, when I made that kind of shift, the whole weight of the world came off my shoulders. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I didn't feel like I had to race to get somewhere. I mean, I'm still competitive. I still want to you know, do big things. But for the first time, I was like, well, I've got the rest of my life to work on it. 
that's an interesting thing that I, okay, so I agree with that. And that I think is a good mentality, but I don't think that that's entirely healthy because I do think having a sense of urgency, I, I, I don't mean it's not entirely healthy, but you do have to add a sense of urgency to that. Sure. Well, think about it this way. Think about, you still have a sense of, uh, like, the way we're built, just our DNA, we want to get shit done, right? We're the kind of people as, as founders that wake up in the morning and we're just built to get stuff done. It's why I can't, like, be comfortable on a vacation because there's nothing to get done, right? I'm just actually just don't enjoy it. Um, so that was never gone. I just kind of took the, the liability of it all. If this doesn't get done by this date, I'm a failure. If this doesn't get done, the world will implode, right? And I just took the the consequence off the table. And all of a sudden, I realized, wow, I'm actually enjoying getting it done. Still getting done just as fast. But but here's the thing, which is, do you own 100% of startups.com? Uh, I do. I own 100% of the equity, but we have people who will share in the upside. Right. So then you don't have a like if you raise money. So I've raised a very small amount of money. If you raise a little bit of money, you have an obligation to like it's your job to work hard towards an exit or a liquidity event in the form of dividends. Right. Or I mean, there's really only dividends selling your company or going public. Right. Um, so but what's your practical advice on removing the time frame while also, you know, being ethical and uh, fulfilling your obligations to work hard towards an exit. You know who I saw do this? It, and I don't know if it's possible unless you're them. I don't know if you remember Kickstarter did this uh, early, early on. And essentially what they did is they went back to Fred Wilson. I want to say Chris Saka was in the deal uh, and some others. They had raised like a $10 million Series A, maybe more, but some really notable people. And they basically went back to them at their height when Kickstarter was absolutely crushing it. And they said... By the way, we're never going to go public. We're never going to get sold. Um, this is what it is. Best case, you'll get distributions. Good luck with that. And now, because of who they were in the market at the time, this this very kind of touchy-feely company that everybody could kind of get excited about, the investors, and I don't know the backstory, seemed to have let them off the hook. They became a B Corp and you know, quasi-nonprofit, etc. Um, that's the best case scenario. But that's bullshit. That's unethical of them. I well, even though I like them. Okay. Yeah. I think that that like, dude, if you signed up for this shit, fulfill your obligation. But but what if the obligation? And I think this is relative to our expectations. What if the obligation changes? It's it can only change if both parties agree to it. Well, <laughs> well, well, let's let's play that out. If you go back to your investors right now and you say you say, look, we're not going to get big enough to be to go IPO. Happens all the time, right? Um, and I'm not. And let's say fictional, you know, uh, alternate universe hustle, not this version that's clearly going to go IPO. But like uh, you, you go back to them and you say, it's not going to go public. We're going to be a $10 million company that throws off a million dollars in net income. Um, and it's just, and by the way, that's how most companies play out, right? If they're lucky. How can you not have that conversation? No, you should have that conversation. But what I just mean is you got to be a man and you got to like stick to the agreement that you guys had. And so... The only way in which that should change is if you come to a different conclusion where everyone's happy. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're saying the same thing. And, and I'm saying, so if you go back to your investors now and say, look, uh, I plan on running this as a private company, um, ergo not going public. Ideally, I don't want to sell it all. They don't, I don't hate money. If someone like you know pushes a huge briefcase of cash, I'm not going to uh, push it back. Um, 
but this is going to be the Sam show. It's going to be the Sam lifestyle business. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean like it's going to it's going to align to how I want to uh, live life, not necessarily to greatest investor returns. Do you think that you can't have that conversation with your investors? No, I 100% would if I wanted to. Yeah, I would, there's nothing that would hold me back from that. I just think that I would say I would you'd have to give them an easy out. Be like, everyone, you're either going to go along with this or I'm going to buy you out. I'm going to make you whole or you're going to go along with it. Your choice. You know, I don't know why this is. It could just be kind of from where I've been sitting, but I've actually heard this conversation and actually some of these outcomes more and more in the last few years. Because, Sam, historically what would happen is uh, you'd raise some money, you'd hit an inflection point, usually when you couldn't raise more money. And then you'd have this tough conversation with your investors and you would say, uh, hey, we're not going to be able to raise more money. Um, you know, maybe we're a $5 million business doing. $200,000 in profit if we're lucky. We're not going to be able to raise more. The story isn't big enough. And so you you become this, historically, this zombie company. Um, not big enough to raise more money, which I don't really give a shit about. But also, um, you own a fraction of the cap table, so it's not big enough for you personally to take money out of it. Recently, I'm starting to see founders go back to the board and recapping. In saying, look, man, you know, we thought it was going to go one direction. It's gone another. We have to recap this business, which means the founder usually needs to get more, more uh, stock. And we have to find another way to pay you guys out long term, which, by the way, makes no sense for VCs. There's no upside to them whatsoever in that scenario. Yeah, look, I'm on board with that. I just think that like if I made an, if I did a handshake agreement, like I better die trying to fulfill my my end of the end of the bargain otherwise like or i should tell them and they i hope they agree this is why like i'm not like in favor of like forgiving student debt because i'm like man you signed up for it you gotta like fulfill like you know what i mean like you gotta fulfill your end of the deal it sucks you made a bad deal but you gotta figure out how to you know what i mean and so it's like that's just what being a human is i think well, well what if but can the terms change yeah, totally. Sure, sure. One hundred percent. So, so in the, yeah. in the case of student debt, using this as a metaphor, um, if if I was on a fifteen year note on repayment, and I say I need this to be a twenty five year note, is that unreasonable? No, I don't think it's unreasonable okay. so long as the other party agrees to it. Sure, of course. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, I'm just yeah, talking yeah. about just like sticking to your word, and so and doing everything in your. So, like, what I don't want is this like victim mentality of. Someone starting a business and being like, well, you know, like it didn't work out. I'm like, dog, I gave you money. Okay. <laughs> you promised me that you were going to, you didn't promise me that this was going to work. You promised me that you were going to like dedicate time and you're going to try your work your butt off to make it happen. You better work your butt off to make this shit happen. Otherwise, like it's okay to fail, but you know, you got to like give it a go. Right. But there, there's an area in between uh, failure and success. That's kind of your, your base hit, right? Yeah, and so yeah, uh, Kickstarter's actually not that bad of an example because they looked like they were going to go on a meteoric rise, and then they just kind of like like uh, stopped, and then have kind of slid down since then, to my understanding. Um, so I think like I'm making this up, but let's say in their peak they were at twenty million dollars, and it looked like man, if you get to twenty million that fast with margin, you could easily get to you know a hundred million you know in, in IPO status, and they kind of is that how big Kickstarter is. Uh, it wasn't hard to factor in because you just they make five percent of how much they raise, and so if they're raising, how much do they raise? Like, well, I'm saying if they, if if people on the site at the time were raising like five hundred million dollars, then you could figure that they'd get twenty five million of that max. 
some that's how big do you think they are 25 million in revenue yeah and, and i've heard it from multiple sources the same place only only they know so you know maybe i'm totally wrong but it's not 50 or 100 million dollars you just actually there's no what do you think that's worth well actually play that out um in the year that they were first doing that and i'm trying to like think my numbers cuz i ran a crowdfunding platform at the same time fundable so i you know it's kind of in that space um in the year that they were uh uh kind of going crazy let's say 2012 that's kind of when they would hit that 500 million range and anybody at the time would have said that well that 500 million that they've raised in the site sam could easily be a billion or 10 billion like it seemed like there was no cap to it yeah and, and in fact there was um and it wasn't like it was just kickstarter there's indiegogo the winner in that one if you remember was gofundme what did they sell uh they sold to excel they actually raised no money um, in my understanding, I heard this from multiple sources that by the time they sold for $600 million, the founders were making 50 million a year. And it was a team of like 25 people, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's awesome. Right. And they, I love that. Zero shit. press. Uh, this is very much a hustle story. If you guys haven't covered this, uh, I'm going to write this down. Yeah. Uh, you have to cover it. It's some guys out of San Diego. Um, and again, I had heard from multiple sources that were, that were close to them. Um, that they were killing it. They were totally under the radar while Kickstarter was getting all the headlines and they were like a cover of Time Magazine at the time when that was a thing. Um, like these guys were totally unheard of and were just printing money. Point being, um, so Kickstarter had this opportunity to become this this bigger thing and their brand was was incredible. But, the, the, but they didn't want to be anymore. Do you prefer making money by selling a company and getting massive capital gains or annual cash flow? Annual cash flow. So... Okay, let's say that you could make a million a year post tax or sell a company and make let's say twenty million. How many years would you need to make that million a year to make that worth it? You know what I mean? Like Yeah, no, I I get that, but uh there's there's a couple things that, that misses out on. Um one, once I sell something for ten million dollars, uh you know, investing aside and in, in kind of you know uh earning on that aside, I have a pretty capped amount that I can that I can earn off of that money. Right. And, and I'll, I'll caveat this by saying, dude, if you put $10 million in the bank, you'll never have a problem in your life again. So like, you know, just that's, it's a, it's a, it's the, the math is true. There, there are some caps, but the, the true net effect on your life is dramatic. The second thing is um, the, the, assuming the company has the, the capacity to grow, then a company is always going to grow faster than money. Right. I mean, all things being relative, if you invested in Google with the money, yeah, sure, that's going to grow faster, but that's not going to happen. Um, so I always want an enterprise that has the ability to grow at whatever pace I want it to grow and not have my wealth, that was the only way I was making money, be capped by um, investment. Also, okay, so then in that regard, GoFundMe, you said the person was paying themselves $50 million a year. They, they were printing money. I've heard that... Um... Like the guy, I don't, I've just only heard rumors. The guy who owns OnlyFans.com, which is like the, you know what they are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that he's making like 20, 30 million a year in profit. What are some of the craziest stories that you've heard of like a small operation just minting profit? Well, I mean, you've got the ones that you've got plenty of fish, which was like, you know, the, that, the OG yeah, yeah, in yeah. this, right? Um, and well, I don't know if they made profit, but I know they sold for a lot. Oh, man. So, you know, it was just him. I heard it was him with like a handful of people. Right. And so, uh, so Marcus friend, uh, the Canadian used to, in the early days, I'll never forget this. Like back when blogging was just becoming a thing, used to take photos of his AdSense checks and post them on his blog. Right. Because they were so absurd. Oh yeah. 
I remember seeing these. I want to go and find it. It was amazing. I'm sure it's out there. And the guy was such a like a, a weird showman. And I mean this in a good way. I'm not, not knocking him. Um he he was just this this unlikely dude, and he just started making all this money off this ridiculous site. Although the person that did that before him was Craig Newmark from Craigslist. I've heard on so many cases how much money that site has made for so many years. So Craigslist, um, my office, my first office at my company was Craig's office. Um, and so I moved in. I had the Craigslist office. That was my office. And I, I moved into their office, which was a three-bedroom apartment. I moved into their office in 2015, maybe. And they had moved out. And they had been around from 1994 to 2015 when I moved in. And they, at that time, they were making $800 million a year in revenue. And they're and like literally, I sat at Craig's desk, which was like an old kitchen table. And he had moved out a few months prior. They are making that much money, like $800 million a year in revenue, I think. And they had a three thousand dollar a year a uh, month office, <laughs> and and I and I I used to get his mail like still like they would start sending. I was like, man, this is so interesting. It's not only that he's been making it, but he's been making it for that long. That's why when you said a moment ago, you said, would you rather have the company that was making a lot of money or or take the cash, you know, all at once? I would caveat that also by saying it depends on the business. Like there's some businesses that I just wouldn't want to be a part of anymore. And so I was like, I'd rather just not have to deal with maybe the craziness or the liability or or anything else of that business. Um, but if it's a business that I actually enjoyed, um, or just wasn't a headache or a liability, then yeah, you know, let it ride. Think of how, so what else is there? What's that? What other examples are there that you've heard of? Of people that just printed money, like disproportionate to their size. Like Craig's, like Craigslist stuff. Well, the ultimate's going to be WhatsApp, you know, 37 people and 37 billion or whatever it was. Um, you know, like you, you, you can't top that, you know, that level. Um, and if you look at, Basically, the people that avoided funding, you know, you've got MailChimp is up there, right? It built this massive business without funding. And MailChimp is maybe one of the greatest businesses of all time because of not only is it such a good product with almost universal acceptance, um, but it recurs and it gets infinitely bigger every month, you know? And so what Ben Chestnut did in Atlanta is just incredible. Yeah. That's one of the big ones. I like that one, but that's a huge company, like a thousand people. But they're probably very profitable. Probably make hundreds of millions of dollars a year in profit. They've also been around forever. Not forever. They've been around for twenty years. And in this business, that's a long time. <laughs> I mean, that's a long time. Yeah, it's like dog years, right? Uh, but uh, and then of course you you got the Basecamp guys. You've got um, Basecamp guys have done well, but I don't think, and I, I don't know this. Uh, I, I I know David a little bit, but not super well. Um, uh, but well enough that they're living in- incredibly well. But what what you're talking about is lifestyles, the rich and famous, like, you know, I own five yachts well, and nobody's even heard of me or has any idea. Do you think Basecamp makes more than 15 million a year in profit? It's split between David and Jason. And so I'm just thinking, you know, David, and it's his business, but David was was uh, was on one of Calacanis' podcasts a long time ago, like 10 years ago. And I'll never forget something he said. It always stuck with me. Jason was trying to grill him on how much money they made, right? And, and David said something I thought was so smart. He said, uh, yeah, you know, we do okay, but it adds up. And one of the things people forget about is if you have a business that makes like, say, $5 million in a year, that's incredible. Now, in that first year, you actually you know, probably pay for everything you want. But when you make it in the second year, the third year, the fourth year, those guys might be in the year 15 or 16 of making that much money. 
you forget how much that stacks up, right? And when you have nowhere else to send it. That's also why with, with a lot of these companies, the reason they're such a big deal now is just because they've been around for so long. And, and they've had the ability to kind of stack. Like, Sam, what you and I have been talking about is the four years of the hustle and kind of Sam's Wolf of Wall Street rise to power. Think of what happens now. If you're making this much money now, and how old are you now? 31. At 31 years old, dude, you've got like 50 more years to collect. Think of how much money that stacks up over time, right? But that's actually hard. You know, thinking about what do you, what can you make that can last for 50 years is also a huge challenge. Um, and that's something I think about a, a lot. Well, think about it this way. So I've done nine companies over almost 30 years, right? Now, there's, there's no benefit to that, by the way. I'd recommend doing fewer. But my, my point is, um, what you're building now, Sam, the hustle is just one thing. But you're building social capital, you're building reputation, you're building connections, you're building access to cash, you're building a lot of things that are independent of the hustle. So if the hustle has a bad year and, and it kind of goes south, you're still levels ahead of where you were before. You'll never start in the same base you did four years ago. Yeah, and that's sick. I mean, that is awesome. And that's easy to forget, though. It, it is, but it's, it's also harder for folks early in their career to understand how powerful that stacking feature is. Yeah. When I was doing my first startup, I was 19 years old. I was a broke kid in college, right? At a time when no one did startups, the internet didn't exist yet, um, and you had no support whatsoever, right? So in my mind, if I could get anywhere near away from, from, that, um, from that starting point, I was light years ahead. What I didn't appreciate at the time was if I could get far away from that, that part, meaning I'd have some, some cash in the bank, et cetera, at such an early stage in life, the multiplier of that opportunity was so much greater. When I started off at 19, typically, by the time you started to get your fire in your career, you were in your mid-40s, right? Which incidentally, I'm at now. I'm 46 years old now, which means at 46, right now, my part, my part in my career, Sam, I would just be starting to make those big connections and kind of you know uh, make those baller plays. You did it by the time you were in your mid-20s, which gave you 20 more years to reap the benefit of that head start. In life, that's a pretty big jump. Is this, uh, this going to be like the compliment Sam Parr episode? If so, I should come on every week. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> um, that's awesome. <laughs> right. Go on. Go on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, What were you saying? But, but it, was, it, it wasn't just to, to high-five you, and I'm glad I high-five you. You deserve it. But, um, but it was also more to talk about um, how much of an accelerant right, that early success becomes. And you just asked me a minute ago, you said, well, what about something that I could do for like 50 years that would have, you know, still be relevant and have the compounding effect? And what if Sam is the product and the things that Sam builds, like Steve Jobs, change over years to reflect his capability? Yeah, look, I think that's the way to go. I think that um, if you're loud like me and you're kind of loud as well, if you're loud, you... uh it's it's freaking awesome you know like build, having an audience and reputation is is the greatest thing ever and i think that if you're listening to this you should immediately create a twitter following create a blog create a podcast have something it's like the greatest thing ever why is that so i um i in the last 12 months i decided to focus on twitter i have maybe 50,000 followers now and it's great because 
for let's just talk about practicality. I tweet all the time. I'm saying I'm hiring a videographer, email me. I'm hiring a nutritionist, email me. I'm hiring this, hiring that. I need this. What's your opinion on this? And I will get literally hundreds of replies. Um, I even tweeted out, we're launching this new product. I tweeted out a pre-sale and I got $50,000 in the bank. Wow. Like, so it's just like a money machine. Um, and so I think that, um, for practical reasons, it's awesome. Like those types of practical reasons. Number two, it's just fun. Like I turned live Twitter on and like the other day, some dude from Sierra Leone was, I was talking to him and I was like, what's up, man? What the hell is Sierra Leone about? Like, how, why are you, who, how do you know who I am and what do you do? (laughs) And like, they told me all about like their stuff and it was awesome. I just connected with someone from, uh, I've never been to Africa. I just hung out with a a guy from Africa online for a few minutes and that was so cool. And I, and and so that was cool. So it definitely expands your horizons. Um, from time to time you get trolled by Canadian models asking you for help about their Instagram. Uh, I get trolled constantly. Well, that, that was me. Uh, when you, when you were in Sarah were in their car driving across country and you went on your first live, for some reason it popped up on my feed. And so Sarah was like answering the questions I popped on there and I'm like, I'm a Canadian. Oh model. yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Who are you? And we were just driving. It's so peculiar. And so, but I've also met so many friends. So, um, before I was married, I like met girls who I'd met on like Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. Um, now, now I've met um, dozens of good friends. I stayed with my buddy, who's now my buddy. I met him on Twitter recently. I like stayed at his house and we hung out. I mean, like it's so fun for just meeting people. So I think, but then as a practical reason, like you just make money. So like no matter what I do, I will always be able to make one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Right. Just from my. I just tweet something and I'm going to make money. And that's awesome. And you think about that too as a milestone in your career, right? Like you now have this power that you didn't have a few years ago. And so let me ask you this. Play it forward. Could we keep going back to four years ago? Let's go four years forward. What would be an unbelievable goal? Not the biggest thing you could think of, but something you think that's within reach, but holy shit, you couldn't believe you were there four years from now. Uh, Like on Twitter? No, no, no. Uh, in, In your life. Maybe Twitter's one dynamic of that. Maybe it's cash. Maybe it's, it's four, success. Maybe four it's... years from now. Four years from because you know we're probably, probably... going to play this four years from now. So, yeah, I would say fifty million net worth. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, what does that four look like? Four years from now, two two kids. Probably four years from yeah, now. Yeah, Sarah's happy to hear that. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Well, Sarah's young. Sarah's only twenty eight. So we have we're, our plan is not to, not to get pregnant for another two or three years, but maybe. Um, wait, what were you asking about the 50 million? No, I was saying, what else does that look like? How does that manifest? Are, 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 are you on a jet? Are you, uh, are you playing, playing golf with the president? Not this current president, but another future president? No, I would, I, my company, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire a CEO to run my company. Uh-huh. Um, cause, cause I hate being CEO. Why? So I'm going to have a seat. Uh, dude, it sucks. Like all I want to do, I start shit and I'm like one of the best in the world at starting shit. I am horrible at running stuff. That's fair. And I think that. I think that people don't understand that starting and running are are definitely there are a, occasionally like the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Bezoses of the world who are good at doing it, but even then, it's like, are they actually running it? I don't know, maybe, probably, but um, like starting and running are just different muscles, and more often than not, what makes someone brilliant at starting actually makes them bad at running. You know, when you run stuff, you need process, you need rules. You need incremental change. You need predicted, uh, predictive, recurring, whatever. When you start something, 
you need to just not like pay attention to too much and you got to say fuck it let's just do it let's roll Agreed. like we ain't looking at any we're not looking at data we're not going to do anything we're gonna let's let's go you know what i'm saying and that is the opposite of what's needed when you run something you know with, with one thing i'd throw out there sam because i always think about this um as a guy who's done a lot of starting i only get paid for my finishes right so starting shit's easy because it doesn't have consequence right um but actually seeing it through is how people get paid and so I always thought like, I'll just spin stuff up. I'll keep spinning stuff up and then I'll hand them off to operators and then, you know, and they'll send me back money. And that kind of worked, but not a lot. It turned out, this is, this is for me. I'm just kind of reflecting my own experience. I rarely ever saw any return unless I saw it through, unless I kind of stayed on the ship long enough. Do you fear that if... Well, by the way, well, no, I, I do fear this. But when I'm talking about hiring someone as CEO, that doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. No, I get it. I get it. But um, but th there's this implication that someone else is going to steer the ship and you'll, you'll, you'll write it from time to time, uh, but, but they'll carry it through. And every now and then you get a, a Sheryl Sandberg or somebody that has like that level of, of, of uh, passion that can drive it through. But often it kind of needs to be you. Yes, but that doesn't mean you have to do it as the CEO. Fair enough. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, how far away from it can you get? Well, it depends. If you're good at setting it up, you can get really far away. If you're good at setting up base camp, that guy can bounce for two years and not touch it and probably would just grow on its own. So I think that you definitely, That's the fair. goal should be to build a business, be a, build a business that any dumb idiot can run. That's the goal. Um, like that, that's like, you know, like Craigslist, like who, what the fuck does Craig do? Who, who cares? It he's, <laughs> he's unimportant. But for, for me personally, I'll always be like president and chairperson or something but like i think having a ceo to operate on a day-to-day -day and you still work their day-to-day -day is definitely the move for most people like gary vaynerchuk when i think of that guy i've only met him one time very briefly he seems quite brilliant he seems like exhausted at running a thousand person company i'm like dude like why don't you have someone you work here and you have someone running the company and you like go and make more stuff and be the spokesperson. The business will crush it. Yeah. I, and he just like, it's some people like, but they're also hard coded into the DNA of the business, right? Like they have a hard time pulling away and there's another side of it. And I, I think, you know, he may suffer from this. Some people don't want to be taken away from it. They, they, they feel a loss of self. The business becomes very much an expression of themselves and being disconnected from it. Look at Steve Jobs post Apple, like the first time around. But I'm not saying be, be, be disconnected from it. I'm saying still be connected with it, but just replace someone to do the shit you don't want to do. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can fill in. Uh, we have a COO, uh, Elliot Schneer, who's you just did the last couple episodes with me. He's also my closest friend. He's, um, he's awesome, right? Like uh, He does a lot of the stuff that I just can't do, right? And I'm very hands-on. Um, but it's also finding the right person. The, one of the best examples of this recently, do you follow Barstool? Uh, I, I know of them, but I don't follow them probably as close as you do. Okay, so it started out as just like a bro blog of just hot girls and sports. And this guy, Dave Portnoy, was the character. And he's still the character. And he's famous and funny and yada, yada, yada. Sold the company for $600 million. And um, right before that and now, he hired this woman named Erica to be the CEO. And so Dave now just only focuses on content creation. Right. And she runs the business. You know, maybe like a, that's like the same analogy as like a like a Kendall Jenner. What's the Kylie Jenner? Like the girl yeah. that has the... Uh, like she probably has like a straight man or a straight woman who's like running the business and she's just out like taking pics and building up an Instagram following. Sure, right. You know what I mean? It's like, that's what I think it should be like. Um, I agree that that's the ideal case. Uh, it puts in a tremendous amount of, of weight and um, 
uh, in liability on the person that you bring in. I think one of the things is like in that first business I did, Sam, the, um, the agency, I tried like hell to take myself out of the business because, dude, it was the dawn of the Internet. There were so many other cool things going on. Right. I was like, hey, somebody's doing pets.com. I wish I could go do that. And so I kept looking for someone else to replace me. We went through four different CEOs in the, in the period of like five years, and I couldn't find a single replacement. And, and they had way more experience than I did. I just couldn't find a me. But you were the CEO? Uh, yes. And how many people worked there? About 700. Fuck that. Oh, my God. It's, all, it's also a, a, a professional services business. So it's not the same as um, like running an internet company where you're focusing on product. Um, 700 people in a professional service business is the most complicated business you could possibly have because every single person is the product. So every person's emotions uh, changes the product daily. Uh, and your product goes out the door at the end of every day. Oh my God, just shoot me. That sounds like hell. It, it is hell. Actually, there's a reason I don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, but but it's kind of... Uh, my thing though is um, you know, extricating yourself from the business sounds awesome. It's hard to do. It's a worthy pursuit, by the way. And if you can pull it off, you know, amazing. Um, but tough to do. D do you think, you know, just kind of uh, wrapping up a little bit, do you think though, the fact that you even have this opportunity, Sam, to make the kind of money you're making, to have the success you're having, to be able to make the decisions like, hey, I want to go work on other stuff while somebody runs the business. Do you feel like if all those things fall together, you've made it? Do you feel like do you feel like you've like that's the that, that's a success and you're playing with house money after that? Hmm, that's a good question. I think now that I will think that. Why? But yeah, I mean that's like the dream. Look, if I if someone can also run the marathon and I get rich, that's the greatest thing on earth. Um so yeah, but no, I think then I would just then I'd be if I didn't work at my company, then I would start something new again and just be in the same boat as I am now. Like I'm not not going to start shit. But it's interesting because you kind of get to a point where all of a sudden you realize that no matter how good things get, I'm just going to want more right after that. It makes it a little bit harder. This is for me. I don't want to project. Uh, it makes it a little bit harder to be so excited about the next thing when you just know that it's just a uh, a bridge into the thing after that into the thing after that. Yeah, I I think that's true. But I would say that, like, in terms of just, if we could just stop being a little bit like entitled douches, like, there is a lot to be said about getting a hit early on. Agreed. Everyone who's listening to this is like, oh, these rich white dudes are talking about how miserable it is to be rich or how sad they are. Like, <laughs> the fact is, is that like having being having money is better than not having money. That is one hundred percent true. It maybe isn't as good as some people think, but it is better. I have been poor and I have been rich, and I choose to have money. Like I like being poor was really hard, and it was like 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 I got sick the other day. I saw this IV in my arm, and we paid twenty five thousand dollars a year for a doctor, a private doctor. Okay, and he's gonna heal me. If I was broke. I totally would not have had the same health care and I would have been very sick and it is incredibly sad that other people don't have that and it sucks. But to be practical, I'm so thankful that I could do that and I couldn't do that without money. So I do want to I don't want to discount that um money and I don't want to I do want to say that like making it at a relatively early age it's way better than not. Yeah, it's life-changing. So like I don't want someone to listen to this and be like you know, well, okay, this is meaningless, or okay, I should be okay with like not achieving. It's like, no, I mean, it's definitely better to like get a hit. 
yeah. Um, had you known that, if you known everything that you knew now, and you're 20 years old, right? Uh, or in this case, to folks that are just kind of starting their career, what would you suggest they do? What's the fastest way they can get their hit within, say, first three to five years? You know, like what would you have them focus on, or what would you have focused on? One of two things, more most likely. The first thing is start a very small business that you could sell for one million to five million dollars. So, like, don't raise funding. Start something small. Don't have a co-founder. Start something small that makes between one hundred thousand and a million dollars a year, which is very attainable. Um, and then try and sell that or keep it forever for the cash flow. But if possible, sell it for five hundred thousand to five million dollars. Your life will change, and it's and it sounds challenging. And it is challenging, but it's very straightforward and simple. Hard, but simple. Um, that's what I would say. The second thing, if you can't do that, is go and work at a massive company that pays you the most amount of money. Don't don't even optimize for learning, I think. Only optimize for what pays you the most. Only work 20 or 40 hours a week. Kind of sneak by and just stash that bread while you live like you're poor. And after the end of two years, three years, you could probably have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars. 100%. Which part did you do well? I made $300,000 in profit um, when I was 24 from HustleCon. And I, that was my money. I remember that. Uh, you know, I remember you talking about that and, and saying that like that, that that was like the impetus that changed everything. Yeah, I made that money and that was sick. Um, but I didn't do... I, didn't, I, I was very envious of any... My wife worked at Facebook. I was so envious that she was able to do that. Um, because I also... The reason I started HustleCon basically was because I had a job as like the hundredth employee at Airbnb, and I got fired the day before I was supposed to start because I <laughs> lied about my resume. And so I probably would have—I mean, who knows what the math would have been? <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't know that. Like, who knows? Yeah, I—I I had a criminal record. I had a DUI on my. That's why I don't drink anymore. I had a DUI, and I lied about it, and they found out. Wow. And so I was going to be like, this was in 2011. So whatever number employee, I would have potentially have been like. 100 200 i forget the exact number i probably would have made 10 million dollars off of that stock you had the world's most expensive dui it was a very expensive dui the <laughs> other i didn't know that i don't that's why i don't drink anymore because i i realized i was like this is gonna ruin my yeah, life i keep getting in trouble and so i don't i didn't do it so um I, that would have been my company to work at man uh what a what a hard right turn um, Sam wanted to say thanks for being on the show. This was awesome. I did not know about your, your Airbnb stock. I'm actually dying to have a whole episode about. Do you want to know the second company was, it was called Uber cab. The first was called air bed and breakfast that I applied at in 2009. And they were like, no, you're like, you're a nobody. I kept talking to them. And then 2011, they offered me a job or 12. I think it was the second one was Uber cab. I found this company called Uber cab. And I went, that thing's awesome. You just, they're, they're trying to hire these people just to go to new cities and launch this thing. Yeah, I'll do that. And uh, so I've had two expensive misses. If you guys ever want to find a good startup to invest in, just have me apply to work somewhere. And whichever one turns me down, that's where you should invest your money in. That's a wrap for this episode of the Startup Therapy Podcast. This is Ryan Rutan on behalf of my partner, Will Schroeder, and all the Startups.com family thanking you for joining us. And we hope you'll continue to join us. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes or wherever you love to listen to Startup Therapy. You can find all of our episodes at startups.com slash podcast. If you're looking for more amazing resources to launch or grow your startup, be sure to head to startups.com and check out Startups Unlimited. It's everything we have to offer, from our online university 
to our amazing community of experts and founders, and even all the tools we've built like BizPlan, Fundable, and LaunchRock. It's everything a founder needs. Visit startups.com slash begin. That's startups.com slash B-E-G-I-N. You'll thank me later. You know, before we go on, I want to remind folks listening that a lot of what we help with here on the podcast, we also help with at startups.com with our coaching team. And if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, you know, I really wish I had these guys on my team, don't hesitate to reach out to us at coaching at startups.com. Uh, let's get somebody on your team that already has the answers to all this stuff and let's help you out.